I'm just going to pray, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come and breathe upon the scripture today. We thank you that you are the word. That this book that we hold in our hand is not the word of God. It is a record of you. It is a record of the word of God and we are thankful for it. And as we draw upon this record today, we ask Holy Spirit that you would come and speak to us. That you would be the word, that rhema word in our spirit. And we invite you to speak to us clearly today as we come around the scriptures in Jesus' name. Okay, well let's open up to the book of Luke. Has anyone noticed I've been spending a lot of time in the Gospels lately? Do you want to have a wonder why that might be? You might want to have a look at the uh, reading schedule. Right? <laughs> so we were really kind in our Bible reading program. We started with the New Testament. Isn't that a great way to do it? Yeah? No, no, there's... There's some powerful truths that are held in what Jesus shared with us, and we're going to have a look at these together. So Luke chapter 19, we're going to. We're going to have a look at a parable which is often aligned to Matthew 25 and the parable of the talents. But this story is actually strikingly different and uh, we're going to outline it together but first of all we're just going to have a read of of this parable in, in one hit together so we're reading from verse 11 uh, you might have a heading in your bible the parable of the minas or the parable of the ten servants i must say i'm really enjoying preaching barefoot that's really good. I love Australia. Australia in summertime, that's a good thing. If it was Africa, it would be 40 degrees and I'd be standing here in suit pants and a tie. Thank you, Jesus, for Australia. What a wonderful country. All right, let's, let's read together. Verse 11. I'm reading from the NLT, of course, as you all know, my favourite version of the Bible. The crowd was listening to everything Jesus said. And because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told them a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. He said, a nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. Before he left, he called together ten of his servants and divided among them ten pounds or minas of silver saying, invest this for me while I am gone. But his people hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we do not want him to be our king. After he was crowned king, he returned and called in the servants to whom he had given the money. He wanted to find out what their profits were. The first servant reported, Master, I invested your money and made ten times the original amount. Well done, the king exclaimed. You are a good servant. You have been faithful with the little I entrusted to you. So you will be governor of ten cities as your reward. 
The next servant reported, Master, I invested your money and made five times the original amount. Well done, the king said. You will be governor over five cities. But the third servant brought back the, the original amount of money and said, Master, I hid your money and kept it safe. I was afraid because you are a hard man to deal with, taking what isn't yours and harvesting crops you didn't plant. You wicked servant, the king roared. Your own words condemn you. If you knew that I am a hard man who takes what isn't mine and harvests crops I didn't plant, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then turning to the others standing by, the king ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one who has 10 pounds. But master, they said, he already has 10 pounds. Yes, the king replied. And to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. As for these enemies of mine, who didn't want me to be their king, bring them in and execute them right here in front of me. Wow, what a wonderful, uplifting scripture. <laughs> so let's, let's unpack this a little. We'll go back and have, have a read through again, and there's just some points that I want to bring out. So back in verse 11, the crowd was listening to everything Jesus said and because he was nearing Jerusalem. He told them a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. Now, I could spend a lot of time unpacking this, which I'm not going to do. There's a whole message in there. But... We have to face and accept what the Word of God says. And one of the things that it says is that the kingdom was not going to begin right away. There is a kingdom that is coming. And Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come and your will be done. And there is a day coming when, a, when the kingdom of God will be established on the earth. But that is not the kingdom that Jesus is building right now. What kingdom is he building? We're going to learn in this story. Let's go down to uh, verse 13. Before he left, he called together ten of his servants and divided among them ten pounds of silver, saying, invest this for me while I am gone. 
Now, the nobleman or the master in this story, this is a parable and we need to untangle it or, or, or interpret it. Who is the master in this story? Does anyone want to have a guess? It's, it's Jesus. Okay, it's, it's Jesus. And he's giving his servants some money. Now, Jesus has made an investment in this place. And that investment was the cross. The payment that Jesus made through the cross was a perfect life exchange for you and me. Is that right? Mm -hmm. So his investment that Jesus actually made was a life. Mm -hmm. A life for a life. Yes? Yeah. So the, the money that we are talking about here, the silver that we read of here, is in fact lives. The money that is being spoken about is not money. He's actually talking about our life. Invest this for me while I am gone. Verse 14. But his people hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want him to be our king. Jesus has made an investment in this, in this world. Is there anyone that has said, we don't want him to be our king? Yes. Mm. That's taking place right now, isn't it? Yeah. Right? Is there anyone in this room in that situation? I would say not. After he was crowned king, he returned and called the servants to whom he had given the money. Because he wanted to find out what their profits were. So, if the currency that we are talking about in this story is lives, what's the profit going to be? Multiplication of lives. Multiplication of lives. Alright, if the, if the original investment is lives, the profit that he's expecting from it is lives. Is that, um, I'm not drawing a too long a bow here, am I? I, don't, I think this is appropriate exegesis of this scripture, yes? Alright. And, and as we know, the first one brings his life and says, Master, I've taken what you've given me and I've produced ten more. And he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. Because you've been faithful with the small thing that I have given you, I will now put you in charge of ten cities as your reward. Now, everything that we read Throughout the New Testament, whether we look at Hebrews, where it tells us that we are kings and priests in Christ, 
Uh, and Paul declares that we are co-heirs with Christ, that we're going to reign with him in heavenly places. Is that right? Here's the thing. Do you think that if God plans to install you, like you, I'm not talking about a general you out there in the wild. I'm talking about you. You dare. You dare. You bend. I'm talking about you. If he is going to install you as a co-heir with Christ, do you think there might be some testing and qualification that might go on in preparation for that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, so silent. In <laughs> Do you think it's possible that God might want to mm. test and approve yeah. those who are going to reign with Him for eternity in heavenly places? Mm. Mm, maybe so. You can all feel a trap coming, can't you? <laughs> You're like, do I want to walk into this? You can, you can feel like the, the gotcha coming, can't you? Well, of course, of course. We know that there is something here. The second servant comes and he says, I, I've produced five. Well done. I'm going to give you five cities. Then in verse 20, the, ser- the third servant brought back only the original amount of money and said, I hid your money and kept it safe. Now, what did we say money was? Life. Who owns your life? Jesus does. So, I kept, I I hid your life, aka my life, but it's his life, right? Is that correct? I hid this life and kept it safe. Hmm. Matthew 15, sorry, Matthew chapter 5, verse 15 and 16 says, No one lights a candle and hides it under a basket, or a bushel, or a bed. Alright? See, today, candles, you know, you can buy like a pack of 100 tea lights for three bucks or something. You know, it's it's so commoditized. But in the day that this was taking place, a candle had worth. Alright? You didn't light a candle unless you actually needed it to shine light. It cost you something. Whether you were making it yourself or you purchased it, there was fat and oil that had to be rendered down. And, you know, uh, the, the scripture tells us about how uh, this stuff was valuable. The parable of the, the ten virgins. We don't have enough oil for our lamp. Give us some of your oil. No, you will have to go and buy it for yourself. Mm. Alright, so so a candle had value. 
And Jesus is saying, no one in their right mind lights a candle and then hides it. Well, this isn't something of value and of worth. And if it has been lit, what do you need to light a candle? Fire. If it has been lit, it must be put on a stand. Are you hearing me, people? Yeah. <laughs> right? Is there anyone here who's been lit? Yes. Right? If you have the fire of the Holy Spirit, you have been lit. And now there is a, a responsibility for that to be placed somewhere where it will be seen. Yeah? So, hiding of a life is actually wrong because it's a waste. Right? If a candle has value, to light it and then to hide it is actually to waste that precious thing for nothing. Great. If you put that candle under something, or like a lid, or a bucket, or bushel, or berry, it's actually going to go out. It'll go out. Exactly. That's right. Very good. I hid your money and kept it safe. Let's go and have a look at Matthew chapter 16. Verse 25. We'll read from 24. And Jesus said to his disciples, this is Matthew 16, verse 24. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. What happens to those who try to keep their life? They're going to lose it. And isn't that exactly what's taking place in this story? I hid my life to keep it safe. The Anytime you invest something, we have a financial word for what takes place to measure an investment. It's called a risk. When, when you invest something, the measure of the investment is the risk. Safety, risk. 
keep it or lose it. It preaches itself, doesn't it? <laughs> Verse 22. You wicked servant, the king roared. Sorry, remind me again, who's the king? Jesus. Jesus. Do you is, is this Todd, this isn't this isn't Jesus, right? Because it's gentle Jesus, meek and mild, you know? Jesus who walked the shores of Galilee. I've got Greg sitting down there going, Savage Jesus. Hashtag Savage Jesus. <laughs> uh, it's, it's like, turn, go have a read of Revelation 1. Right? John, here's John, the beloved of Christ. The young man who rested on Jesus' chest, who had such a love for Jesus. He's there to see Jesus, the one that he loves, ascend into the clouds. The next time John sees Jesus is on the Isle of Patmos. He takes one look at him and falls down like a dead man. Right? Remember, these guys, uh, this is where we get the term bosom buddy from, is from what the scripture says, how, how John reclined on the Lord's bosom. That's how close these two were. But when John sees Jesus on the Isle of Patmos, the shock causes him to fall down like a dead man. Eyes blazing fire, hair white as wool, feet like burnished bronze, a voice like many waters, a tongue like a two-edged sword. No wonder it shocked him into a coma. Right? So I don't... I don't see it being unreasonable to the righteous judge who we read about. Who who is this who comes up out of Bosrah with his robes drenched in blood? I I alone have tread the the winepress of the nations. Right, Jesus came as the suffering servant and the sacrificial lamb last time. But when he comes next time, he is coming as the King of Kings and the righteous judge. And his voice sounds like thunder. That's that's what the scripture tells us in Revelation. So I actually don't have a problem with hearing this, this king roaring. Your own words condemn you if you knew that I was a hard man who takes what isn't mine and harvests crops I didn't plant. Verse 23. Why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? The thing that strikes me about the kind of people that would hide their light under a bushel, these wicked and lazy servants, is that not only... Do they not produce other lives from their own? But you will find that they won't even put their life into servants, into service rather, with the bank or the storehouse, the church. They won't even come and serve the church because of the, the fearfulness and the laziness that dwells within the core 
of, of that person. And then here's the thing. There's an excuse here for this servant that had he have invested it in the bank, at least then there would have been some return on that investment. And there is, there is the inference here that that would at least have been enough to satisfy the king. And I, I just find it interesting that today, in, in this life, in this society, that the kind of people that won't produce are also the people that won't serve. Uh, let's uh, go down to verse 25. But master, they said, he already has 10 pounds. Verse 26, yes, the king replied, and to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. So there's a promise here in verse 26, for reward upon reward for those who are faithful. And in the eternal kingdom, there's actually going to be a redistribution of the wealth and rewards of those who were not faithful servants to those who were faithful. That's what this scripture is telling us. Do you want me to say that again? That in the eternal kingdom, there will be a redistribution of the wealth and rewards of those who were not faithful servants to those who were faithful. Because that's what we see here, but from those in verse 26, but from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. And what is the nothing? Well, if we're talking about the production of profit and, and the profit and the money that we're talking about is lives, then the nothing is the production of no lives. And he's saying that the reward of such people will be nothing. Now, it's, it's important to note that in this story, the servant is not, unlike in Matthew 25, where he says, take the wicked servant and cast him out where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right? That doesn't happen in this story. The servant is not thrown out. But what does happen is that there's no reward for him. Do you see that? So this man is a servant of the king. I'm a servant of the king. Are there any other servants here? Yes, okay. So every single one of us is promised a reward for our faithfulness. But in this story, the unfaithful servant loses his reward. He doesn't lose his place as a servant, but he does lose his reward. And if you're thinking, well, Todd, you're stretching this a bit far here, 
Actually, I'm not. I'm going to show you from other scriptures that this is, that the way that I'm interpreting this is actually accurate. So let's go to Second uh, Corinthians. Chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5. And uh, we're going to read uh, from verse 10. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. Now, Paul here is talking to believers. And he's saying that we will all stand before him to receive Whatever we deserve for the... Now, I have the words good or evil. Does anybody have anything different in their version? Good or bad. Good or bad. That's better. The, the Greek words that are used here that have been translated good or evil or good or bad, bad is better, because it's, not, it's actually not talking about morality here. It's talking about productivity. It, so it would be better translated, we will each receive what we deserve for the beneficial or worthless we have done in this earthly body. So each one of us are given a task or tasks by the Holy Spirit. And when we face God, the judgment that we receive is not about whether or not we enter into salvation. The judgment is on what we did with this life and whether it was beneficial or worthless. We also see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter 3, we're reading verses 12 to 15. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials. Gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of fire. Interesting. So it is clear from Scripture that there is a mandate 
that is given to us by Jesus, that the life that is being purchased by him, he expects a profit on. God, the great divine capitalist, he's looking to make a profit on you. And the profit that he wants to make is measured in souls. So evangelism has a gold standard. If we are going to win people to Christ, it is more than just getting people to pray a prayer. In Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20, and it, I mean, you should already have this underlined, yeah? Matthew 28. What do we call this scripture? The Great Commission. And it's only for the 12, right? Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Only for the 12. Verse 19 says, Therefore go and make converts of all nations. No, disciples. Discipline followers. Baptizing them. Oh, there we go, Carlo. Hey. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. Say all. All. Wow, all the commands. Right? We, we joke about um, all to Jesus I surrender. Ten yeah. percent to Jesus I surrender. No, no, no. Fifteen. <laughs> Do I have any more than fifteen? Ninety-four. So... Yeah, let's... No, you know what? I think a lot of people would go with 95. I'll do it all. I just won't evangelize. Right? I'll do everything. I'll follow Jesus to the ends of the earth. I'll do whatever he asks me to do, just as long as he doesn't ask me to evangelize. Of course, the problem is, is what every theologian and every denomination and every church agrees is the most foundational instruction and command from Jesus Christ is Matthew 28, 18 to 20, which commands all of us <coughs> to make disciples. Let's go to Ezekiel. Oh, Ezekiel, how do I find that? This is where people who have got their... That's where people who have got their apps are really happy because they just went through and they find it. So we're going to Ezekiel. It's after Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. That's that's where the Old Testament song helps you. It's interesting because Jesus didn't give each of us some ten, some five, or some one or one of the minors in respect of himself. He gave us all of himself. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. And he gave all of us the same. Yeah. yeah. And every single one of us are start from the same position. Yeah. He gave one life for your life. Yeah. And now that one life must produce. Yeah. Ezekiel chapter 3. And we're going to read from verse 17. Son of man, I have appointed you as a watchman for Bendigo. Whenever you receive a message from me, warn people immediately. If I warn the wicked, saying you are under the penalty of death, but you fail to deliver the warning, they will die in their sins, and I will hold you responsible for their deaths. If you warn them, and they refuse to repent and keep on sinning, then they will die in their sins, but you will have saved yourself because you obey me. Now, of course, it didn't say Bendigo. That would be all too scary. It said Israel. But I just thought I'd throw that in there. That's the next suburb. Yeah, that's right. Next one along. If I warn the wicked, saying, you are under penalty of death, does that apply to anyone who is not in Christ today? Are they under penalty of death? Yes. But you fail to deliver the warning. They will die in their sins and I will hold you responsible for their deaths. Every single one of us have been made a watchman on the wall for our city, for our nation and for the world. Oh, Todd, you can't put the whole world on me. Well, no, that's, that's fair. I can't. But what I can put on you is those who you do see for. Your, what, what in, in the Greek is called your metron, your measure, your circle of authority, your circle of spiritual influence that God has placed around you. There is a responsibility on you as a watchman, as one who sees, as one who perceives, there is a responsibility on you to warn others, behold, the end comes. You know, when I'm talking to people down the street and they say, well, why are you doing this? I, I give a little analogy. I say, imagine that you're standing by the side of a road that you know leads to a bridge over a chasm, but the bridge is out. And you see a car driving down that road. Are you going to stand on the side of the road and say, well, I, I don't know who those people are. It doesn't mean anything to me if they go off that bridge. 
No, of course not. Any anyone who is has uh, the remotest sense of what is decent and is right is going to jump out on the road in front of that car and say, stop, stop, the bridge is out. Am I correct? You don't have to know those people in the car to jump out in front of them and, and wave them down and say, stop, don't go any further. If you continue on, you will surely die. Yeah, I, I don't do that. It doesn't matter to me. No, of course, every one of us would leap out on that road and we would stop that car full of strangers from plunging to their death. Am I right? And then I will say to that person I'm talking to, stop, stop. The bridge is out. And I'll watch it strike them as they realise that I am trying to warn them that there is an imminent death coming if they persist to go in the path that they're going down. So every single one of us has got a responsibility before God to stand and declare that there is a penalty of death coming and you must turn from your sin that if they don't, and we have warned them, that our hands are clean. But if we don't warn them, we will be held responsible. So who's willing to go? Let's go back just a few books to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. You should, this is a, a scripture that everyone should know. Reading from verse 8. Then I, the Lord, asking, whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? I said, here I am. Send me. The thing is this. God never coerces us to serve him. But he gives us a choice. Now Isaiah had had a vision of God. And that vision was what propelled him to respond when God said, who will go for us? The vision that Isaiah had had of the living God caused him to say, I will go. Here I am, send me. And I want to say to you that if you're struggling to find the inspiration to share the gospel, then perhaps it's time that you had a new revelation of Jesus. Perhaps it's time that you had an encounter with him that shook you to your core and caused you to respond like Isaiah. I am a man of unclean lips in a nation 
of men of uncleanness. I am here, God. Send me. Send me. And I want to encourage you, if, if you struggle at the idea of taking the time to tell others about Jesus and, and to be willing to go to that stranger as they continue to, to drive down the road, as ACDC said, on the highway to hell. And, and you struggle to find it within you to jump out and say, stop, stop. This path leads to death. Then you need a revelation of Jesus. You need to get a revelation of who he is, of his holiness, of his righteousness, of his justice. And you need to see him as Isaiah saw him, as Ezekiel saw him, as Jeremiah saw him, as John saw him on the Isle of Patmos. You need to get a revelation of the one whom you serve and allow him to, to allow the fear of God to lead you into righteousness. Righteousness, the right wisdom of God, the right path of God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom comes when you get a revelation of the awesomeness of who God is. This, this is a wonderful, wonderful proverb. Go, go to proverb, chap, Proverbs chapter 11. Verse 30. I thought this this is just an amazing proverb. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to read it from the NIV. It says this. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. And the one who is wise saves lives. Isn't that good? The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and the one who is wise saves lives. John 15, 8. Let's have a look at it together. John 15, 8. I'm giving you all these scriptures because I'm, I'm wanting to show you that that the concept of evangelism is not some addendum to life in Christ. When you produce much fruit, you are my disciples, and this brings great glory to my Father. Real disciples of Jesus bear fruit. Jesus states in non-certain terms that a real disciple will produce after their own kind. And the context of this scripture is clear that the fruit he speaks of in chapter 15 here is not the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit he speaks of is souls.
I want to, there's a few more scriptures, we're out of time, but I, I just want to, to mention them in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Paul encourages us to be single-minded in focusing on fulfilling our responsibility of sharing the gospel as widely as possible. Romans 1, 16 shows us that there is no room for fear and shame when it comes to sharing the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And we need to have that attitude. And in Revelation 21, 8, it tells us that cowards will not inherit the kingdom of God and will have their place in the lake of fire. 2 Timothy 4, 5, Timothy tells us, sorry, Paul tells us through, as he writes to Timothy, to do the work of the evangelist. So at the moment, we're, we're in a season where we're going out on the streets. And it's only a season. We're only doing this for a few more weeks. Now, perhaps going out and doing street evangelism is not your thing. That's okay. My question is, what is your thing? What are you actually doing? I want you, I want you to be willing to take a good hard look, a hard look, at your own life and ask yourself this question. When was the last time I discipled anyone into Christ? What's the measuring rod you need to use? Is it days, weeks, months, years, decades? I'm telling you now, you don't have to legitimise your actions to me. I'm not your judge. And I end, I am not judging you. I, I don't know your life. I don't know how you live. I don't know what you're doing in, in your private time. I don't know what happens in your workplace or at school or amongst your family. I don't know any of that. I'm not placing any judgement on you at all. But I am warning you of an expectation that comes from Jesus Christ himself. Are you satisfied that your building will withstand the fire? 1 Corinthians 3. The builder will be saved. Oh yes, you're saved. You're going to heaven. But what is the reward that is stored up for you? Is there any? Like I said, you do not have to answer me. I am not your judge. But there is one who is a sovereign judge. And it is to him that you must answer. Father, We thank you that you chose to make your plans and purposes for our lives clear through this book.
we thank you that you love us so much that you would demonstrate and describe exactly what your intention and purpose for us is. And I pray, Lord, that just as we know that your word says that your mercies are new every morning, that if any one of us today is convicted by what your word has to say on this matter, that we would not react in pride, that we would not seek to justify ourselves or our actions to anyone, least of all to you, Father. But instead, we would receive, as your word says, that you discipline those whom you love, and that we would receive that discipline and respond with a good heart to you. Jesus, we know how much you love us. We know that it is your desire to prepare a wonderful place for us. But I pray today, Lord, that we would not rob ourselves of what you have prepared for us through being wicked and lazy servants. God, don't let that apply to any of our lives today. Stir us, Lord. Convict us, Holy Spirit. Breathe upon this word and let it cut, let it cleave like a knife, dividing even our soul and spirit, cut right into the core of us today, I pray. Let us respond to your word in Jesus' name.